Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Seek things that challenge you to think differently in a new and better way. When people have had a different set of experiences, they will bring different facts, different experiences. Yeah. And it causes you just to reflect. And that's a hard thing to do, too. You've got to slow it down. I mean, the greatest training I had over my career was the opportunity to work with people that have different mastery, and we all want to make a difference. The more senior I got, the less I knew about the subject matter I was asked to engage in. Seek to understand and empower the people closest to the real knowledge source, the people that do the work every day. Instead of critiquing, understand what is the process is seeking to understand instead of be right, do right. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. So as you know by now, I have a podcasting problem. We'll see how long that lasts. Anyway, on one of the other shows I launched, Learnings from Leaders, we have candid mentorship-style conversations with business leaders, entrepreneurs, and philanthropists, most of whom are alums of P&G, where myself and a bunch of my friends and co-hosts used to work. And every couple of years, the P&G Alumni Network, with whom we produce our show, hosts a big global conference where titans of industry, but mostly old friends, gather. The latest conference was in Washington, D.C. this past November, and as an infamous podcast host, I was invited down to lead the first night's keynote conversation with two of P&G's most recent successful CEOs, David Taylor and A.G. Lafley both of whom are now alums that I've had the privilege to chat with on more than one occasion, on and off the record. So, as you can imagine, it was a lot of fun to have such a raging, open, and honest conversation with two of PNG's most accomplished recent leaders. And while neither of them are modern minorities, they're both great global leaders and allies from whom we can all learn a lot. And did I mention that the big event was emceed by friend of the pod, funny Indian, and fellow PNG alum Rajiv Satyal? What you won't hear on my other podcast is how after this CEO chat, Rajiv did 30 minutes of material and crushed it, and we then proceeded until the early hours of the night, finding ourselves in a Washington, D.C. Chinatown basement restaurant at 3 a.m. with several prominent business execs and entrepreneurs. I kind of wish we had a podcast microphone for that one, but that's a topic for another show. Anyhow, in this chat with former P&G CEOs David and AG, we chose to go beyond their personal stories or even the stories of the day and rather discuss their approach to some of the broad challenges we have to face together to meet the moment. And beyond the really great stage intro by Rajiv and the dope Radiohead track I get to come out to, there's even a few good film and book recommendations for you to get through over the holidays. So let's jump right in. We hope you enjoy my Learnings from Leaders conversation with David Taylor and AG Laffley from the 2023 P&G Alumni Global Conference in Washington, D.C. This panel should need no introduction at all. 
Many of us know my pal, Raman Segal. He is the voice of learnings from leaders. For the past four years, the Alumni Podcast has been our companion on many walks, commutes, and kitchen cooking sessions. And many of you in this room have had the privilege of being part of the P&G Alumni Podcast. And if you've not appeared, well, you know what we think of you, I guess. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Our podcast has featured all of our P&G Emeritus CEOs, two of whom are joining us tonight. A.G. Laffley was P&G's CEO and chairman when I was there, like many of you, in the early 2000s, serving from 2000 to 2009. And then A.G. did what most of us did not do after leaving. He came back. He served as CEO again from 2013 to 2015. But what many of you might not know is that A.G. also worked on a number of very interesting ventures in both chapters of his P&G alumni life. Dell, GE, Legendary Entertainment, and Snapchat, to Figs, and the city of Sarasota. A.G. also co-authored the book Playing to Win, as he's passionate about sharing his learning and experience with the next gen of leaders. And, of course, David Taylor is one of our most recent G alumni. Yeah, you can clap for David Taylor and A.G. Serving as P&G's CEO and chairman from 2015 to 2022. Like some of our best leaders, David held cross-functional leadership roles from operations, manufacturing, ultimately marketing, and general management. During his time as CEO, David reinvigorated P&G's growth, returning P&G to sustainable, balanced growth and value creation. Also helping navigate the company through what we all know was a very trying time by demonstrating the purpose, values, and principles we all hold dear. Today, David is already making quite a name for himself in lending his knowledge and experience to companies large and small, from Delta Airlines to private equity to sustainable building, as well as with the P&G Alumni Foundation. I also hear he is a massive Duke fan, so we might be hearing more about that. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, A.G. Laffley and David Taylor. You should have had more fun with us. Oh, Radiohead, thank you. All right, this be me. Radiohead, all right. All right, this is what I like to call P&G Alumni After Hours. So, uh, David A.G., seriously, thank you for not being on a Zoom screen with me. This is <laughs> lovely. Excellent. So before we get started, you know, a lot of people have had some opening speeches that have really bummed us out, so I thought I would do that as well. No, seriously, I want to play back for the audience what we've been hearing out there, not just today, but we're, we're hearing in the news. I'm doom scrolling like the rest of you guys. Our society is divided. Jobs are going overseas. We're not doing enough about inequality. We're not doing enough about immigration. Wars overseas could become international flashpoints. We're uncertain about all that new technology. And how can the kids these days call that music? Seriously, like, I don't get it. And look, these sentiments are playing out at happy hours, dinner tables around the world. And this is nothing new, because honestly, everything I just said was expressed in the 1940s, the 1960s, the 1980s, and even the early 2000s. As my mother-in-law likes to remind me, every generation thinks it's the end of the world. So, I was talking to A.G. and David earlier, and we want to go beyond that today. We want to have a conversation about not just what's going on out there, but in here with our Emeritus CEOs, because for tonight, I think that's how we're going to meet the moment. So, David, A.G., you guys ready for this? Sure. All right. So, we heard earlier, you're both working on a lot of interesting things. And we can talk about the specifics of those new ventures, but I want to know why. Like, A.G., my head spins at all the things that you're doing. What drives you into such an interesting array of just diverse projects? Fun. Yeah. 
um, different. Yeah. And I just wanted to flip from big public audit committee meetings, governance, risk management to small and a lot of fun. So yeah, I'm doing startups in early stage, a lot of private companies, and I'm pretty engaged in nonprofits. And the one I'm probably the most passionate about is this new park with a new performing arts center on Sarasota Bay, 53 acre project. And the work at Center City Development in Cincinnati that I did for the better part of a decade kind of got me turned on to the power of private public partnership. Mm. Messy, but um, you can get really good things done that wouldn't get done in cities otherwise. Yeah, it's this like hyper-localness, right? Not hyper-local with your interests, right? Legendary. Yeah, they're local. I mean, one's local in Silicon Valley, one's local in LA. What's local, local to your in... interests? It's yeah, yeah. Narrow, narrow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I believe, I guess the other two things I'd say, I just believe you, it's very difficult to have an impact on a national level or an international level, and I really do believe you can have a lot more impact you know, on a local level or on a small level, and you have a much better shot at a transformation in your lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, so far, you've been really choiceful. That's kind of in the word as I've heard about the things you've been doing, about how you're spending your time post-Proctor. Is that by design, or in, when we do this again in five years, I'm going to hear about like 20 things like AG? No, I, I'm a big fan of focus in picking a few things. And, and the objective really was, much like at P&G, I wanted to work on things that I care about, with people I care about, and be able to make a difference with the people I work with. And so one company, I'm now chairman of the board of Delta Airlines. My father-in-law worked for Delta 52 years. My brother-in-law worked for Delta 40 years. I've flown two million miles on Delta. <laughs> and, I, and, and it's got a combination of, it's a branding challenge. It's an international challenge. It's got a culture, in many ways, a lot like P&G. It's the reason my brother-in-law and father-in-law worked there for over 40 years each. And so the opportunity to work in another industry and learn what is a very complex industry, tough industry from a, a market standpoint, from a value creation standpoint, was exciting. And it happened to be that one of our former board members was chairman of the board, so it was a great opportunity to work with a, a distinguished group, diverse group uh, board. Uh, Ed Bastion's a terrific CEO. So that one was one, and that f clicked all the criteria. Another is a startup, and this, this one's going along the lines of AG. I want to do something very different. It's a early stage venture on sustainable building products. It's a small company based in Vancouver that we'll see whether it can make it because it's, it's trying to disrupt this very old, sleepy industry called construction that has enormous embedded carbon. And it's try, it has a way to have much less embedded carbon in buildings. And they've got partners with Siemens and, and Honeywell and others have made investment, but it's extraordinarily difficult in this time to raise the capital. Capital markets are very difficult for anybody that's involved in, in private equity. But it, it, if it's successful, it'll matter. It'll really matter in an important way. It's got a very distinguished board. It's got four Fortune 500 CEOs on a tiny little company that is very tiny. Uh, because all of us in our second uh, act, if you will, wanted to learn a new industry and do something that could really make a difference. And then the others have joined the board of trustees of Duke University. Duke has been, I went to Duke, all three of my yeah. wife and our sons went to Duke, two of our daughter-in-laws went to Duke, two of our sons went back, got graduate degrees at Duke, I paid 16 years of Duke tuition. You finally got to meet uh, Coach K. Uh, 
So, yeah, it's, it's, so it, it's, again, it's something I care about. It's something that's impacted my life. It's my wife and I have seen the impact it's had on my sons and two of our daughter-in-laws. And so the opportunity to work and, again, learn from incredibly bright people. Uh, I bring down the average IQ of the Board of Trustees of Duke <laughs> University by a meaningful amount. Uh, but it's another wonderful chance. And then the other one, which I, I still am, it is very different, is an advisor, senior advisor for a private equity firm. And what that gave me was a chance to see five different industry verticals and learn a lot. And that one's the one that's most on the edge in terms of really making sure it aligns with everything. And that it's, it's certainly a, a different industry that doesn't have the best equity, but this specific company, AG, worked with them as well as an advisor. And that was one thing that influenced me. I had somebody I had high, high respect for, AG, another one of our former directors, Jim McNerney, worked there as an advisor. And it's a company that truly wants to leave the companies better than they found them. Almost half their deals come to them from founders hmm. because they want to invest in and create value but leave a company that can prosper after they leave. They're over 30 years old. And it's a private firm, so you don't have the quarterly earnings call and all the other things that can encumber to me and, and relate to short-termism, which is not what you need. Hey, you, you fight that at PMG. So you both have this kind of involvement in private equity. Like, that's really interesting to go from, like, massive, you know, public, Fortune 50, et cetera. Private equity, does that just kind of give you the flexibility to flex muscles, try new things? Because, AG, you spend some time in private equity as well, right? Yeah, I mean, there are kind of three kinds of companies, right? Fix them up, start them up, mm -hmm. and keep them up. <laughs> and uh, P&G was mostly keep it up. But keep the also, plane going, keep the plane but going. But we also had to start it up, yeah. and occasionally we had to fix, fix it up, up right? So um, the good thing about fix it up is you see the benefit of your effort yeah, fairly quickly. quickly. It's, you know, honestly, they're either going to fix or they're not. And um, I, I felt like David expressed that CDNR was sort of one of the more principled, values-driven, mm -hmm. um, more ethical companies in that industry. Um, and you just learn a ton. You learn a ton. That's the biggest reason. You learn a lot fast. Well, there's the one thing I've seen in almost all of our CEOs that I've gotten to talk to is curiosity, right? It's like the sensational curiosity. In the, when you're flying the big plane, you're curious with your lieutenants on what's going on, digging in, trying to help. But you can like cast a much wider net in private equity, I think, to try different things. So, so you've, you're both kind of like working on new challenges. You're building new muscles, but you're kind of working off past muscle memory and bringing that muscle memory to these things. Uh, the thing in Vancouver you mentioned feels like it has an operational root to it. It's a very complex yeah. kind of scale-up operation. But you both have very different approaches. So this is where I want to have some fun with you guys. I've asked each of our Emeritus CEOs to kind of share a current challenge that they're working on right now, and I want the other one to kind of address and talk through it with them. Because <laughs> this is going to be fun. So David, I'd like you to go first. You were actually telling me last week about some of the challenge that You've seen at a place you're very passionate about, Duke, given the recent Supreme Court decisions on admissions. Can you, uh, can you talk to a little bit of what that problem is first? One of the challenges that U.S. universities are dealing with, there was a recent Supreme Court ruling, Harvard and UNC, uh, around their admissions policy around affirmative action. It was struck down, and it's caused a number of institutions to, to wonder about how are they going to address something that they feel deeply about. I believe absolutely strongly that building a diverse student body, just like a diverse leadership team, just like a diverse board of directors leads to far better outcomes. And there are those, when that happened, that, 
in, in all seriousness, when that Supreme Court ruling came, all of a sudden people started questioning it. There's already a great deal of polarization, which we'll talk about later. And, and, and there's almost a vilification of difference, where difference is the greatest opportunity to learn. And we know that at PNG. I mean, you look around the crowd here, one of the great special things about having 40 plus years, 42 years at PNG, was you got to work with people from all different backgrounds. And that was one of the special gifts that you get as being a, a, a part of the PNG family. And now the universities are going to have to figure out how, and something I, I really want to work on, how do we accelerate having diverse student bodies, accelerate having diverse faculty and administrations and boards and boards of trustees because of the benefit it'll provide and not let something like this come in. But it's created all kinds of, of you know, threats, legal action. There's some very, what I'd consider, it's either the far left or the far right can come at you very hard no matter what you do. And we've got to stay focused on values. So I think it's a challenge, but it's one that really matters. And so that's one that we're working on. And uh, you know, I know the, the, the university is extremely committed to make accelerating progress. Not let this be a setback, but how to go back and think about how do you recruit, how do you communicate, how do you value difference in a way that just may look differently than a traditional, you know, you've got the highest GPA and accomplishments. Look at the, the, the whole set of experiences that, that people overcame to be in a position, still have very high academic standards, but meaningfully increase and accelerate the rate of it, which I think is a fabulous challenge. Yeah, it's something you're touching on. It's like trying to understand the root cause of the problem, right? Yeah. Uh, a problem well, well stated is half solved, and, and we're working on really understanding what that means, because in many cases, people are reading into it much more than what it does. It prohibits you know, directly stating quotas and having that built in structurally. It doesn't mean you can't say, we want to build a diverse high-performance student body, faculty, board, all the other things. AG, what are your thoughts on this? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one, I can certainly identify with what David's doing because I've served four decades on the Hamilton Board of Trustees yes. and still do. And I served on the Harvard Advisory Board for the business school. You know, I believe capitalism, entrepreneurship, and innovation lifted billions of people out of poverty in the world over the last 20 or 30 years, and I believe that the approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion enabled accessibility and opportunity for millions, okay, at U.S. universities and colleges. So the first reaction, as David alluded to, is extreme disappointment. We just lost. The academy wants to go into the bunker. They want to defend the lawsuits, and it kind of gets negative and defensive, right? Yeah. And so I loved what David said about let's go on the offensive and accelerate. And, and he and I were talking in one of our calls that one of the challenges we've given the college is use the technology, mm -hmm. use AI, okay? Use machine learning, use all of the tools that you have to identify diversity in new and better ways right, and the full range of differences. So you can keep it going regardless of what the law yes. of the land is and regardless of what the decisions are, you know, in the different courts, because they're gonna continue to, I mean, I, I'm a little bit pessimistic about the, you know, about the lawsuits, they're gonna continue, right? Yeah. Because they're, they're politicized and they're political in many cases, but, but I think it's an opportunity, and I love what David said 
it's an opportunity and it's an opportunity to accelerate and I think the colleges and universities that take that attitude, take that approach, mm -hmm. find that strategy are gonna be very successful. It's really about the pipeline, right? Like you have to yeah. start with a diverse pipeline, even at P&G, like what are the schools you're going to, what are the things you're filtering for, yeah. et cetera. So I wanna bring that over to kind of a challenge you had identified, AG. Something we've spoken about a lot is the future of talent. You know, how do we align millennials and Gen Z with purpose, right? And this is something I'm finding and sometimes failing at in my own day job, right? I have yeah. a bunch of people, I'm a Gen Xer, and now I'm having to contend with purpose, values, and principles and aligning it with the technology company that I'm doing. So how, how are you thinking about that? How is that impacting the startups and stuff that you're working with? Yeah, first, the background and context. I mean, when I talk about small companies, some of the companies that I'm working with are five to 10 people, mm -hmm. right? Some are 10 to 20. So somebody asked me earlier, oh, you mean a small company like 500 to 1,000? <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, some of the companies aren't generating any revenue yet or generating a little we bit. We call that pre-revenue. Yeah, yeah pre-revenue. <laughs> You're good at selling. You're so good at selling. Marketing, I learned uh, from the best. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, when you have a team of five or 10, Every player has to fit, every player has to have grit, every player has to be excellent at playing her or his position and make the team better. And so when we were having our conversation, I just find it's, it's way more challenging to get at real purpose, values, and principles, you know, ethics. It's um, very challenging to carve through CVs these days. I mean, kids with chat GBT, I mean, it's all brushed up, right? I mean, I'm gonna get a premium CV or resume. Um, there are apps that teach them how to interview, how to look at you, how to smile, what to, what to wear. Okay, so it's just hard to sort through. And small companies, and especially small nonprofits, they just don't have the resources that P&G does to sort through. So you're relying almost exclusively on judgment and that's extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. So we're sorting through, you know, and I'm wide open to ideas that anybody has. I've talked to several people over the course of today and I hope to learn more tomorrow about tools and techniques, methods. You know, what do you do to try to sort through? Because the worst thing that can happen is you bring one player on a five player team and it's the wrong player or they're a disruptive well, player. It's, you know, when you're a company that's small, and I've felt that, I've been there, it's, you gotta fill the seat, because we're dying, right? But yeah. then, something a founder once taught me was, you're better feeling the pain of the empty seat than putting the wrong person exactly. in the seat. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of what we're doing is, I mean, when we did, the, I was talking about Baker earlier, and we did the first summer camp, which led to the first intern program, which has been great, I think it's still great for P&G and other companies, the interns have, eight, 10, 12 weeks to check you out. You have eight, 10 to 12 weeks to check them out. And I don't know, a high, per, high percentage of the hires come from that program. So we're looking for, we can't run an internship program, but we can run all kinds of tests. We can put people on W-2s, we can put them on projects, we can bring them in as volunteers. And we're just looking for all these experimental ways that we can get to know her or him and they can get to know us and we'll both make a better decision. David, how do you think about talent and this new generation that has a completely different set of expectations and ideals and expectations? Yeah, I, I certainly I think that it's, it's a very real challenge. I think at times we're making them like they're not human here. They're got to, you know, they, they, they don't have the right values. I, I, 
in many ways, I think they have, they've grown up in a different environment, just as each generation does. But my view is there's lots and lots of people that have good values. It just shows up differently. And I think our challenge is to look for and understand, and I think he's raised a really good question, it, you may have to look for things differently. You used to be able to do an interview and a couple references, but there's too many things to help you be, look in, in some mold, if you will. And, and you're not looking for that. You're looking for the real person, what, the, what really drives them. We get them excited. We get them to really smile. And that's why I think some of the things you just said are so powerful, which is it, finding ways to create experiences with a real-life interactions where you've taken away any kind of chat GPT or any prep or any whatever, Teaching to and finding out how people mm -hmm. deal with conflict or people deal with interpersonal issues. And one of the things that I, I, I love to do and found helpful is get people talking about not professional things, what something earlier in life and what they did, and but get him talk enough about it where you can see the facial reaction and, and get a sense where it's, if, it, if it's very superficial and you can tell it's what you're supposed to say, then, then I, I really get concerned. The flags go up. On the other hand, when someone's willing to go kind of off-road in something and talk about themselves and open up and show some vulnerability, then you're starting to see something that really looks like there's a level of maturity and self-confidence that is important. And then I'd love anything that allows some time to really see in situation uh, there's no substitute. It's hard. AG's working with smaller companies than I am. Even the, the sustainable building products company, when I got involved, was 100 pe people. My son was employee three at a startup, at a software as a service startup. Now they're up to 100 employees. So yeah. They've done well. But uh, he's called me. He said, Dad, this is crazy. They think I can manage. I don't have a clue. <laughs> and I've got 20 people reporting to me. Uh, and he's doing a great job. And you know, it's but their hiring process is, is a lot about conversation and, and just talking to people about what's important to them. It's really hard, I, and I don't know how to on resumes because I've had several people send, you know, help me have a good resume. Okay. You know, it's, just, it's a polished resume tells you very little. No, no, it, it's, it's the one-to-one. -one. It's the passion for the mission. Yep. You know, what commitment to the mission, right? Well, what happened, I want to separate that because passion for the mission of the company or the thing that lights them up. Those aren't always the same two things. Yeah. And, you know, when I was coming up, look, I didn't want to work at a soap company. I kind of stumbled away. I wound up doing digital. Why not? That's, well, oh, I, did, I never heard of it. You I never like heard of clean? it. Well, but no, I, I came in for the digital marketing. That was what was cool, the thing that lit me up. But it is that I feel like, and maybe it's every young generation, we want to have our cake and eat it too, right? I want to do the thing I like at the company I like, in the city I like. And how do you thread that needle? I feel like the expectation is higher to get it all in that first role. I think that's all fine. In fact, I think most kids, 21, 22, 23, 24, don't have any idea, really, mm -hmm. you know, what they want to do. They're just sampling. You know, it's the first, first thing that attracts them on the smorgasbord of life, right? So that's, I'm totally cool with that. Um, I just think it's harder to figure out it's much harder to figure out where some of the candidates are coming from. And it's not just, I'm not talking about just a Gen Z or a Gen Y mm -hmm. um, situation or a Gen Z situation. Small companies just are way more challenged mm -hmm. in this area. And the cost of a mistake is much higher. I agree with that. It's you know? different. It is different. And that's why 
I, I, you know, I look for commitment, I look for some grit, and I look for some fit. And, and one thing we do do that's starting to work is we have them meet, not get interviewed by, but meet every player in the, yep. in the company. The and that makes a difference, right? Because you know, just hanging around, going for a walk, doing something together, you know, checking each other out at night, doing something, you, know, you, get, you get one more piece of feedback, you get one more piece of input, and it helps. Yeah, you're looking for like attitude and aptitude, right? And yeah, yeah. You can you can teach the skill. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, I guess I want to talk about like level up. You know, the challenges of today's CEOs at startups at Fortune 50s are much different than the ones even David you faced a few years ago. Um, and I want to talking about the big pictures of globalization, economic challenges, board challenges, pandemics, AI. Um, but there are macro trends that I think give all of us pause and. I think we all have to address them. So, AG, one of the challenges we kept talking about was the shifting parameters about, you know, how we work today. Like how we work today versus how we worked five years ago is very, very different in the expectations. Can you talk about why that keeps you up at night? Yeah, I mean, I did a medium piece on this. I think we got all hung up on where we work mm -hmm. and not what we work on, how we work on it, and why we work on it. And um, I really don't care very much where um, people are working on things. You can have a team meeting lots of different places other than you know, your little, whatever your company headquarters. I always joke that the park, that's the world headquarters of the Bay Park Conservancy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so I think you, know, you need to think that through. Um, I think it's very hard to build a, a culture without some significant amount of time and energy that the team invests in being together, working together on meaningful stuff. Um, I think it's very hard to do creativity that, that involves team creativity or team innovation um, unless you can get, get together. But I just think you need to be pragmatic and creative and um, be willing to experiment with different ways um, to work together. Um, obviously, technology powers a lot of things that we couldn't do 10 years ago, and certainly not 20 years ago, and that's an enabler, okay? It's uh, also a distraction. Yeah, we're, sometimes it becomes a crutch. Yeah. Mm. yeah. David, how do you think about this changing style of work? I, I'm very much in support of the comment about uh, focusing on the work as opposed to place as much, although I do very much believe that interpersonal relationship drives a great deal of the creative, collaborative environment that creates breakthrough results. Uh, I think a watch out on, in this area, uh, and I've seen it a good bit, is when we get down to task versus an outcome focus. Many times, I'll take give an example, in, in Zoom and other tools, any of those tools, virtual tools can be very effective and they do a lot of things really well. But when, when those just short circuit to say everything can be done that way, you, you end up having a task that you have a meeting and then the task is done. But in, in, we all know we have plans, plans meet reality and then you're constantly adapting and changing. And to me, one of the benefits of some form of interpersonal interaction is, and, and I want the team to own, not the task, but the outcome. Start with the end in mind. And, if, and the outcome almost always requires many more things, small steps outside a primary task that comes in a meeting. 
meetings often are inefficient. Uh, not a lot of people interact and they're not conversational. And you miss the, the nonverbal communication that is so important. And you miss some of the relationship building. And what's interesting to me, and I've seen them now in a couple of different venues. Uh, my son's company is totally virtual, totally virtual. They still have some get-togethers, but they've found ways where they have to do, they do social things on increasing frequency because they need the human connection to allow them to do many of the things that are required in a company that's got a creative side as well as an execution side. And I think the focus ought to be with the team is what is the outcome, and then have the team truly own the outcome. And then what happens is there are many things where virtual meetings are great to get the task done efficiently and you can go and move on to the next thing. There's other things that require and benefit by the collective intellect. And the collective intellect is building off each other. And if Roger Martin's in the, in the audience or an AG can certainly say, hey, Roger, you know, I'm a massive fan of this whole concept of integrative thinking, which is if you, know, if you and I have a conversation, Stasi, and you have a different point of view, Instead of trying to do what so many people try to do, which is win the argument, say, no, instead of winning the argument, I want to listen to why you have a different point of view, because I value you and I trust you. And what happens if you listen, and listen is listen for understanding, as opposed to many of us, self-included, often are listening to speak. We have no clue. His mouth is moving, no clue what he's saying, because we're <laughs> formulating our response. I mean, all of think of us, we do this too much. But if you truly can, and Roger, I think it's, it's a wonderful reflection I had and said I really need to work on this is I want to understand and you walk down the ladder of inference and you find out he has a different set of facts and experiences that I do and if I've got the humility to listen and say wow I didn't consider those things because I didn't know them how could I know them and if you surround yourself with a diverse team it's a wider circle of knowledge and facts you have access to and then instead of trying to be right you get the team to try to do right which is usually better third way, which is you had a good idea, but I had some good ideas, and both of us weren't right. Both of us had thoughts. Let's get the right thing done. Let's do what's right for the institution, whether it's P&G, or whether it's a five-person team, or whether it's a sustainable building products, or it's Feeding America, or it's the P&G Foundation. Whatever it is, focus on the outcome of outstanding, and that requires to me the interpersonal skills to be able to have a true listening conversation, not the transaction to hear, talk, hear, talk, hear, talk, hear, talk. And I think the watch out is, and I think it's a real big one, is we distill to, we got the task done, it saved time, I didn't have to commute, so everything is good. And I think five years from now, we're gonna reflect and say, we may start to lose part of the creative competitive edge that causes so much great things to happen. And I'm thankful, at least in what I've seen of the P&G world, and frankly of the Delta world, they understand this interpersonal connection that opens up the door to not try to be right and try to do right. And you see that others bring so much. Difference is an opportunity to learn and grow. When I, uh, when I started, and I started in shampoo, so I like shampoo more than soap, good, just to good cover enough. that one. Um, but one of my mentors... Just like another application of surfactant. You yeah. But the, the guy who recruited me to the company, um, walking around C3, right? He's like, just walk around the floor in the morning. Talk to people. You'll get, you can get your work done during the day. Don't worry about yeah. it. The work's going to get done. But get to know the people. Mm-hmm. Get to know what makes them tick. And then, and then something I actually learned from a podcaster is like, ask why three times. And I was like, that's seek to understand, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Like, 
find out where you're coming from, where your facts are coming from, what facts might not be the ones I'm, I'm working with, and try to understand the differences. I think there are two other dimensions of this. One, if you really think, I think most of us who came through the P&G system learned as much or more from our mentors, our coaches, and even mm -hmm. people that weren't our mentors, our mentors or, or our coaches whom we were exposed to, listened to, observed, right? And there's a ton of tacit learning that goes on. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to do any tacit learning on the other end of a Zoom, mm -hmm. right? Or on the other end of a Slack, on the, right? It's, it's virtually, it's pretty hard to do. I think you need the core relationship first. Yes, you yeah. do. Okay. Because then you can't. You can't get out and of it. And the other dimension, and, and Roger wrote a piece on this a while ago, and, and uh, you and I were talking about it a while ago, is yet, yeah, but... So much of the thinking today is reactive, responsive, it's fast, right? And to, to, first of all, to get the problem defined so you can begin to solve it, you've got to slow it down Measured and you've voice. got to devote the thinking to it, right? And I just don't think you can really get to breakthrough innovation unless it springs out of the head of one innovator, right? One scientist, right? That still works. But if it requires any amount of collaboration, if it requires any amount of iteration, any amount of co-experimentation, I just don't see it happening. You know, you need that time to mull over things, to chew on things, to go down the wrong road two or three different times, come back up. How do you create and, that discipline and that practice to do that? Sorry? How do you create the discipline and the practice to do that? You, you set it aside. Yeah. You know, you actually have to, you know, Basically, if you want to innovate in these companies, you're, in, you're going to have to be, put yourself in a collaborative situation. And I, they can figure out where, mm -hmm. okay? And I don't care where, right? And um, sometimes it is remotely and they're, you know, mm -hmm. they're moving the ideas around or the research around or whatever. But um, however you do it, I just think it requires slowing the thinking down collaborating at a much higher level, finding more unlikely connections, all of which takes time, all of which takes thinking energy. And um, too many things are just moving like this because they're task-driven yep. or because they're reactionary. We're reacting. We're reacting to incoming. We're reacting to the latest. Look, remember the circle of concern and the <laughs> circle of control, Stephen Covey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. What's happened is the circle of concern has gotten huge. We all think it's wider because we have access it's to everything. It's huge, yeah. and we're more concerned about more things, and the circle of control is basically down to you better have some self-control and self-awareness because that's about it, right? <laughs> so you, the only thing left is to work on the circle that Covey didn't talk about, which was the circle of influence, right? So you have to figure out how to create mm -hmm. influence when it matters, and it ain't easy. So David, one of the challenges that you said we need to face down, and I wholeheartedly agree to this one, is the absence of civility, the divisiveness that's just in our conversation these days. It's hard to have a conversation with someone that doesn't think the same way as you. Just elaborate more, please. Yes, it is. Well, you ask the question, you know, what, what do you worry about outside your direct business? Yeah. And to me, it's this broad trend and change that certainly I've seen in the last, I don't know, certainly even the last 10 years of this moving away from civility and listening and valuing differences to the point of just extreme point of views. And I'd say many of these are strongly held point of views, but very weakly informed. 
<laughs> and, and that combination is dangerous. Think about it. It's very strongly held and vocal, most emotional, but without the foundational learning, the basis in that subject matter. And then what social media has done, so many positive things, but one of the negative things is in order to drive more and more participation, there's a lot of effort to create more emotive and more, more extreme views, and it's just now spun in many ways out of control in many areas. It affects, to me, civil dif discourse in governments, not just the U.S., but in many. Uh, the ability to solve difficult problems, to me, is fundamentally based on a quality of relationships that have been fractured, and I think COVID one of the bad outcomes of COVID is many relationships and, and interpersonal skill development slow down. Uh, I've, I've talked to one of the college professors, her saying it's like these the people coming in are just like they're coming in, they're, they're sophomores in high school, they're not graduates coming from high school, and it's for two years they didn't have the socialization and interpersonal skills. And, and a model that, that I remember back in my early days in plants we said, you know, you can look at a continuum of how strong your relationship is, and then you look above it, how the degree of difficulty problem you can solve. The stronger the relationship, much stronger problem you can solve because you come with the respect, willing to listen. In today's world, if the relationships aren't strong, and if there's things that amplify, I make a statement, and it can get spun up, passed around, added on, more sensational, by the time it gets to second, third, or fourth, or fifth, it's way, it's not based in facts anymore. And so I think it's a real challenge for all of us as leaders and just as good human citizens of wherever, whatever country you're from, is to work on and find ways to help contribute to just civil discourse and basic listening. The thought of listening to understand, assuming somebody is wanting to do the right thing, but. I find it, uh, I mean, very discouraging when, when I'm just, and I don't want to get into politics, so I won't even give the example I was going to give, uh, <laughs> yeah. is, is when, when things that you know just are just wrong, I mean, from a value standpoint, uh, others will support just almost to aggravate others, uh, which to me, we've got to, we, we can't pile on. We've got to just kind of call it for what it is and, and get back to values. And then civil discourse, tough issues. There's a lot of tough issues. And let's not try to simplistically deal with them by taking hard point of views. Instead, you know, deal with them. I think many of the things that AG said, getting groups together and, and kind of working on them to solve tough problems. Uh, and I'd, I'd love, Roger, for everybody to, to, to think about integrative thinking. I'd love for some of the people that taught some of the basic uh, diversity inclusion. Inclusion is required for diversity to work. Valuing in relationships is required for diversity to be unleashed. And in society more and more, it seems there's cohorts and strong views and vilification. And I'd, I'd want to work to confront and, and try to, you know, where I can and, and participate with others. And I'm open to ideas, but it's one of the more concerning things, I think, on a broad basis. AG, how are you, how are you finding your way muddling through this? Well, I, I, I mean, I... David and I are totally together on, you know, civility is a challenge and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. But I want to flip it slightly and say that all of us who had the P&G experience, I think, can be exemplars of a more civil dialogue if we choose. I've taken on two of these 
private-public partnerships. I thought the one in Cincinnati was challenging when we started up Center City Development. And you know, I recall things like we did a poll in Cincinnati Inquirer about whether the public wanted to move the statue. And uh, something like 96% of the poll respondents said, don't you touch that statue, <laughs> remove it. So you know, in the middle of the night in the new design, we moved the statue. And, uh, <laughs> Fountain Square is a hell of a lot better designed and laid out today, right? So um, you, know, you run into a lot of it when you put yourself out into the public arena, which Bob was talking about, which is one of my favorite quotations from Teddy Roosevelt. But I think if you can be patient, stay calm, cool, and collected, uh, listen even when it's ridiculous, absurd, or mean-spirited, okay? Showing grace. And then, yeah, yeah, just show grace and just try to move it along. And I'm not going to tell you, you know, it was kind of funny. Today, I was joking earlier, I got a nasty gram from one of the city commissioners, and I got a call me over the weekend, call from the city manager, and I'm going, Jesus, we're a park. <laughs> we're a public park. Get life. We just had 15,000 people through there. They were happy as could be. You know, We're going to have 300,000 in the first year of a 10-acre park. But people can get riled up over the smallest things, and I just think you have to, you have to stay above it, and you have to bite your tongue a lot of times, put on your Kevlar vest. Yeah. I hate public meetings. I hate public meetings, but I do them, yeah. right? And I've learned how to listen, and I've learned how to honestly not respond. Yeah. The key is don't, don't respond to the, you just don't respond to the craziness, and you shift the dialogue, right? And you try to set an example, and you try to connect with people who are willing to at least have a dialogue, even though they have strong differences of opinion, they're willing to have a dialogue. But I think it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, I want to finish. I think it's worth it to go through it. I'm glad I didn't do this work my whole life. <laughs> I'm glad it's only part of what I do. But I feel very good about the outcomes. Yes. And the outcomes aren't just the placemaking. You know, the outcomes aren't just the transformation of over the Rhine. Right. Okay. Remember the movie um, that was shot in 2001 about the drug... Yes, great movie. That was shot principally in, in Over the Rhine, okay? And, um, you know, it's not about that. It's about transforming the social relationships in a community, and that's what gets me, you know, frankly, turned on and motivated, right? It's really about bringing people together. Mm -hmm. The placemaking and all of that is just an enabler. Well, it's, it's a practice in the way you approach these conversations. To seek mm -hmm. to understand, someone smarter than me said, strong beliefs weakly held. Yes. So, you know, it's okay to have your belief, to have your conviction, mm -hmm. but you need to be open to changing it. And to get it informed. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think having a strong point of view is good, but be open to truly be informed yeah. before you form the strong point of view. I, th I love what AG says about just slowing down the process and truly seek to understand. But it's really hard to do. You know, how many of us try to be right? Be right quickly. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be right quickly. You have to ask questions and you have to be vulnerable to say, I just don't know yet. 
but I'm willing to learn, willing to listen, willing to find out. It's just hard to do. And the word dialogue you use, which is one I think is really important, you know, we need to teach dialogue early to people and practice it. Dialogue is not about quickly winning the argument. It's about engaging an exchange of ideas to get to a better place. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a really important skill. I think, uh, without opening the hornet's nest, that's the media. Um, <laughs> someone that's, some, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, right? Not one media uh, and we have politics. another 30 that's minutes. another four-letter but, word. But someone said this morning, uh, and they echoed something from the previous Zoom we had, David, like, we all have the bias of news and media that doesn't inform but affirms. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. It's, it's a trap we all find. It's a mental practice to have to walk away from that. Yeah, I mean, how many of all of us regularly seek media, different media than we normally listen to to make sure we hear the other side. Most people, I mean, one of the, there's a lot of polls out based on what TV show you get or where you get your news, TV, sure. online, whatever, you know, you can predict with a very high accuracy how you're going to vote uh, because it, many seek to affirm and reinforce as opposed to get informed and learn and think and contemplate. Uh, and it's one I think we all have to challenge ourselves instead of getting dug in more and seeking things that help us feel right, seek things that challenge you to think differently and hopefully in a, in, a, in a new and better way, which is again why I think diversity is so important because when people have had a different set of experiences, they will bring different facts, different experiences, yeah. and it causes just to reflect and that's a hard thing to do, too. We've got to be right fast. I don't have time to do that. You've got to have the time. You've got to slow Reflect it down, Reflect right? and think yeah. about it. You've got to slow it down. I think he's right. I mean, I, the greatest training I had over my career was the opportunity to work with people like AG and countless people in this audience. You know, because in that, it doesn't matter. This labels and titles get in the way. If you take those aside and say we're people that have different mastery and we all want to make a difference, if we approach it that way versus labels and titles and who should be boss and who should be the person that knows, the reality is the more senior I got, the less I know, knew about the subject matter I was asked to engage in. Travel around the world and be, what do you think? So wait a minute, you live here. I come twice a year and you want to know what I think. How about you tell me what you think and I'll help you think through it because I, I can, I'm fairly good at listening and fairly good at, because that makes sense. I, but the idea of defaulting to senior is, is something to watch out for. All of you in whatever positions seek to understand and empower the people closest to the real knowledge source, which in our PNG was the junior people. Delta spent a day below the wing. What a fabulous day. You know, there's planes below the wing as people do all the work to get everything there. Follow a bag through Atlanta and you'll go, the, the thing, <laughs> go, oh my goodness, these people work like crazy to get that bag at the right place at the right time. Climb up in the belly of an aircraft. And what you see is you come with tremendous respect for the people that do the work every day. Instead of critiquing if it's a plane, you know, it's off a little bit, understand what is the process that's putting these people in such a tough position. And it's just a different start to seeking to understand instead of be right, do right. One of our friends, Sundar Raman, um, he was on the Smart podcast guy. talking to my friend Ida, and he talked about this idea of finding the way to the third way. He talks about how he does that with his sons. And yes. Uh, it's, it's come up a lot. Can you unpack that a little? I think the folks in, in the audience really should hear about what is seeking the third way about. It's, it's really just my simplistic or simple way to summarize it. And AG is, to me, a, more of a master in this area. I've learned so much from AG and broadly the topic of, of strategy and thinking through tough problems. 
but it's more of that process of listening to understand, and if someone has a different point of view, really trying to understand why they came to that point of view. And in the search for understanding why, and if you can suspend your view for a while, you almost always come up with something you didn't know, because all of us have a different set of experiences, and that's why it, it just gets back to this whole fundamental benefit of empowered, inclusive, diverse teams. But it's, it's hard. And with the other things, that one of the other, you're going to ask me about book, but I'll tell you one that <laughs> one I'm going to mention today. But one of the other books that I loved many years ago that somebody gave me, it's called Halftime, and it's this whole idea of seeking to move from success, personal success-driven ego, yeah. to significance in the lives of the people that you care about. And, and when that happens, when people realize the, the much more gratifying role of being significant and having others be the hero, then you move to a very different way. This better third way is all you want because you're not worried about being right. You're worried about having somebody else. I mean, anybody that's a parent, the most satisfying thing is seeing a son or daughter do well. That's far better than doing well yourself. I mean, you know how much you pain. Somebody said that you're, you're only as happy as your least happy kid. Uh, if you're a parent. So you want all of them to be happy if you want to have a prayer of being happy. Uh, and so it's, to me, it's this whole idea of the third way to me is this learning and, and combining from different people to find simplest better. example I can think of that I think everybody will remember is we introduced a new product in the test market. It was, it was the one that soft-sealed um, food. And um, it was successful, yep. right? And we went, oh my God, we're gonna have to invest in tens, hundreds of millions of capital to build the manufacturing that we would need to introduce the product. So what's the next logical thing you do? You look at the major players in the industry and we tried to make an acquisition. Well, what happens? Your competition gobbles up all of the candidates. So Clorox bought, bought one. I can't remember who the other one bought another one. So you kind of, you know, move number one doesn't work, move number two doesn't work. Well, what do we do now? And uh, well, have we talked to uh, Clorox? What? You know, and we ended up doing several partnerships mm -hmm. with competitors, and I actually believed we could have, should have been open to maybe even a few more. You know your competitors usually very well, right? If they're operating and they're leading in an industry or a category that you don't compete in, it's a logical strategic choice, right? And I'm, I'm really glad we explored it, and I'm really glad we've done it a few times. We did it on Swiffer, on the Swiffer Duster. I think we did a couple of things with Henkel. I can't remember all the details now. But that's a, that's a very obvious example of finding a third way, right? Just being open to... Yeah, we'll the way we approached GBS, we decided not to outsource everything. We decided not to insource everything. We decided Thank you for to that, sort through it, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. There, uh, but I do think lots of times it's not that you immediately get to the third way. It's that you just stay open and you are dissatisfied with the choices that you have in front of you and say, okay, you know. But if we just wanted to pull the trigger, make a decision, get it done. You know, you could, you could take one of the other choices. They're not illogical. They're not bad choices. Mm -hmm. They're just not as good. Yeah. All right, so it's getting close to bedtime. So You got that right. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you, do you guys want to try a little bit of speed round? Are you ready go, man, go. Sure. 
wrong answer. No one's ever ready for a speed round. So, <laughs> so when you first each got the big job, what's the best advice someone gave you right before you took the seat? Say no. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, listen. One word. Listen. Learn first. Okay. Be yourself, and what got you here ain't going to get you there. So uh, beyond each other, who's one sort of person that you'd want to have a conversation like this with? Socrates. Okay. I'll give one a little closer to home. I heard Condi Rice speak, and I was fascinated by what she said. For those that have ever met, had a chance to meet her, I'd love to sit down and just talk to her. World Affairs, just fascinating, thoughtful. So um, this is the book question, the book TV question that you guys have both alluded to. What's something you've read or seen that's opened your mind up just a little bit more? Halftime? Uh, Halftime is one, but one that I'm reading right now is called The Coming Wave uh, by Mustafa Suleiman, who is the founder of DeepMind Artificial Intelligence. And it's fascinating, and it's it's scary. Uh, I will tell you it's scary, because they'll say this is one of the first times We've got people smart enough to develop a technology to understand how to create it and use it, but not understand all the things it can do, yeah. which is really, and this is from a really smart person that founded it, saying this, uh, and he's saying generally technologies once you unleash are tough to contain. And this one, he said, I don't know how we will contain it. It can be used both ways. He uses the analogy of nuclear power. It's a pain says, we're able to contain it largely this one, he says, it's out, and it can, he goes through the, just a lot about what it takes to contain it, and it doesn't fit the model of being contained, and it's got massive impact quickly. AG, you got to bring me up. Give me, give me a happier read. What, what are you reading? I'm going to give you a happier read. One, I'm rereading Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, but I just completely read, reread, and I'm giving to one of the organizations, everybody, a copy. Has anybody read The Four Agreements? The Toltec Way, love that book. It's very thin. You can finish it in 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> a lot of pictures. But it's, no, no <laughs> pictures. It's, uh, it's a way of life, right? Yeah. And it's uh, be impec- And by the way, you can't, you know, it's aspirational. So be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Do not assume that's difficult. And always do your best. Yep. And it's so simple but so powerful, and um, you know, be impeccable with your word, say what you're gonna do, do what you're gonna say, yep. because all anybody cares about is what you do. They don't listen to what you say anymore. Yep. AG, when is the last time you did something for the first time? I can't talk about that in front of this audience. <laughs> I'm not going to touch it then. <laughs> He's not going there. I'm not going there. All right. All right. Well, we'll close with the serious one then. Um, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> what's, uh, you know this one. I ask, I ask every guest on the podcast. What's, what's one piece of advice you have for the next generation of leaders? Um, or this room out here. How do, how do we need to go meet the moment, so to speak? What do we need to do? How should we be thinking about things going forward? Okay, I'm going to cheat because we talked about this earlier this afternoon, but I really believe in it. Now more than ever, you have to be the change that you choose, that you want to see in the world around you. That's classic Gandhi. But I think it, it has to begin, you know, 
what's the line from Chariots of Fire? The power comes from within. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to choose to be the change and you have to take little steps and do it one step at a time. David? I, I will take the, the, the quote from the, the, the message of the book, Halftime, which is choose to be significant in the lives of the people you care about and the organizations you care about and, and less worry far less about personal success because doing the former leads to far more success and satisfaction and fulfillment. Ladies and gentlemen, David Taylor and A.G. Laughlin. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. You were awesome. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Rajiv Sathyal. And I'm still Raman Segal. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.